Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Several months ago, I did an episode about Karen's. I promised you a follow-up episode because I knew that we were going to need to talk about race when we talked about this topic. I came to that first episode about Karens with a concern about my own behavior. Am I a Karen was the question that I was asking. Today I'm asking, what is a Karen? And am I one not just because of my actions, but simply because I am a white woman? I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is not a normal episode of The Real Question. The reason I brought the initial version of this question about Karens was that I saw some behavior in the world that I didn't love the look of but thought that I was at risk of doing. I could imagine myself yelling at a nurse, and I could imagine myself feeling like my children weren't appreciating what I was buying for them. Watching Terms of Endearment and Mommy Dearest, I watched two white women interacting with other white people, behaving entitled. One of the women, well, I agreed with the urgency of her desire. I want my child to be out of pain. The other white woman, I didn't agree with the urgency that she brought to the situation she was in. Wire hangers? Really? The conclusion I came to in the last Karen episode was essentially this. I am capable of acting in a way that I am not proud of when there is a single person representing a corrupt system. I hate the nurse when really it's the hospital that is cutting corners by not having enough nurses. I resent the kids not hanging up their clothes when really the messed up part is that women are at risk of losing work much more easily than men. I hate the end of the line rather than the top of it. What I was coming to believe was that being a Karen was about misplacing righteous anger onto the wrong people. A stereotype about Karens is that they, quote, want to talk to the manager. I understand the bad part of this stereotype. An entitled lady saying, you're useless to me. Let me talk to someone with power. 
But also, imagine if instead of yelling at the nurse, Shirley McLean said, my daughter needs her meds. I know it's not your fault that you are understaffed. Who should I talk to about the staffing here? And then used her experience to organize for better staffing requirements at hospitals. Shouldn't we want women to look at the frontline worker and say, let's try to fix this system because we are both victims of it. But then I thought there was a completely separate element of Karen's, the racial element of a Karen. I saw Karen's as having two distinct attributes. One, I want to speak to your manager, which while usually awful, could actually sometimes, with enough will and work, be a force for good. The other is the Karen who calls the police on Black people, literally never a force for good. I wanted to talk to an expert about these two different concepts around Karens. Why are they intertwined? Is there something sexist at the heart of the stereotype? Are there aspects of a Karen that can be used for good? So what you are about to hear is a conversation between me and Dr. April Williams. I can't even tell you how qualified and brilliant Dr. Williams is. She has a professorship at the University of Michigan, but is also affiliated with Harvard and Notre Dame to just name two. Dr. Williams researches and teaches sociology, recently focusing on memes that Black people create in response to white violence. She's published papers and given many talks about Karen memes and their history and impact on our culture. This is probably already really clear, but this is not a normal episode of The Real Question. We recorded an episode in our usual Real Question format about the racial elements of Karens, but to be honest, it was bad. The format of The Real Question is two texts helping two friends figure things out on their own, but there are some things that we cannot figure out on our own that we need experts to help us. So to that end, here is my conversation with an expert, Dr. April Williams. April, my first question is just that I'd love to hear about your work collecting and analyzing memes and particularly around the Barbecue Becky meme. And if you could tell our listeners who don't know, who is Barbecue Becky? Yeah. So Barbecue Becky, aka Jennifer Schulte, is a white woman living in Oakland, California, or at least was living in Oakland at the time. But she was a white woman who was concerned about a Black family having a picnic in a park, a public park in a historically Black part of Oakland. Well, Oakland in general is historically Black, so (laughs) we could talk about gentrification another time. And so she called the police multiple times over the course of several hours harassing this family as they were having a picnic, saying that they were using hot coals in an area where they weren't allowed to be using hot coals. So barbecuing was actually allowed. And there's still some uncertainty as to where they were. There are different areas in the park where charcoal versus gas is supposed to be used. And I was never sure where they were. But 
the reason why she made the complaint is because according to her, the hot coals were going to burn children. And that was a unfair risk, an unfair burden on the taxpayer. Wow. That is a jump in logic that is interesting (laughs) to try to follow. So you analyzed the memes around barbecue Becky and what ways did the idea around her spread around the internet? What was like the sort of takeaway of these memes? Like how did the world see her? Yeah. So I think for the most part, Black people thought of her as another line of white women who is harassing Black people and not minding their own business, right? This was in 2018, but it's funny because now there's a TikTok going around that's like, as a Black person, you'll never be alone because there'll always be a white person in your business. So I don't know how many of your listeners have heard that one or seen that TikTok, but I find it particularly hilarious because it is the truth. And the funny thing about it is there's always a picture of some white person and a Black person's business going with it, right? Um, And this is the same thing. A white woman who was sort of patrolling and taking on this idea of vigilante justice enforcer, right? So for her these Black folks were not following the rule of law and order. And she wanted to make sure that they conformed to that. And I think that's largely how folks in Black communities saw her. Um, And they're sort of poking fun at her and her feigned crying that she did to the police when they finally arrived. All of these things, right? She's calling and they're really not threatening her at all. They're just living their lives. I don't know exactly how white people saw her. I think that they understood that it was ridiculous that she was making the call, but I think it would be a few years still until we got to sort of the Karen moment before white folks were really thinking about the larger, broader implications of these kinds of behaviors being caught on camera and also these actions being something that happened on a regular and repeated basis. So can you talk about that transition from Barbecue Becky to Karen's and it becoming more clearly part of a conversation among white people? Yeah. So in Black communities, we've often had this idea of white women as a threat, right? In the same way that a white woman called in her family on Emmett Hill with a fabricated story, a fabricated idea, which was rooted in racialized ideologies at the time, right? And they exerted this um, extra legal punishment on him, which was to kill him, right? No trial, just took it upon themselves to say, you're breaking the rules, or even the implicit social order, which is that Black people, Black men, don't talk to white women, right? It's the same kind of thing that we're seeing with Barbecue Becky and Karen. And so I think people really started to pick up on that in the moment of George Floyd and in the moment where we're hearing all the time, often, of Black people who are getting the police called on them and they're losing their lives, even though they either have not broken the law or have broken some very minor, like traffic law, right? Or selling cigarettes outside of a bodega, right? Those kinds of things. So really, I think 2020 did a lot to shift us from thinking about Becky's and Susan's as we sort of maybe talked about it in the past, we as in Black communities, communities of color, to Karen. And part of that is because 
of the pandemic, right? There was this moment on Reddit where people were saying, Karen wants to talk to the manager of the coronavirus pandemic, right? So we sort of have these two parallel moments happening where both are actually talking about older white women entitlement and entitled behavior and how white women can act in a way that is very much so I'm uncomfortable or you're breaking some social norm and I want to make it explicitly known that that's what you're doing and I want to correct the social order. You have to conform to my way of thinking about this. And so as the pandemic is happening and we're starting to see anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers, people who just are unwilling to do what it takes to protect their communities, people are assigning the ideology of a Karen to that. There were so many memes early on with the haircut, right? The I think Kate from Don and Kate Plus 8, unfortunately, got placed as the Karen. Um, that's a Karen haircut, right? That sort of imagery that we have with that converge at the same time in this moment where white women are being recorded of calling the police on Black men or Black folks, Black children even, for no good reason. Um, So on the one hand, we have Karen wants to talk to the manager of the pandemic, but also Karen wants to talk to the manager of humans in the U.S., which is police, of course, right? And on the one hand, it's not racialized, right? It's just a general entitlement. Why should I have to be made uncomfortable for someone else's safety? Which is very interesting when we think about it. On the other hand, it is a very racialized kind of white entitlement uh, behavior. And so we can really see at the root of it is entitlement, and then it gets expressed in different ways, right? Whereas one might be lack of care and concern for your community. And on the other hand, it is supposedly this great, overwhelming care and concern for your community, which drives you to call the police on Black people because you think that Black people are a threat or a harm. And so at this moment in 2020, where we're having the pandemic and we're also having this sort of reawakening of racial consciousness, I think there was really a convergence around Karen as a shorthand for entitlement and entitled behavior. That is so helpful because, I mean... I'm just going to repeat my question, even though you brilliantly answered it already, but I always saw it as two different Karens. There's, I want to speak to your manager, Karen, and then there's calling the cops on Black people for no reason, Karen. And I love the brilliant way that you were like, nope, that's entitlement. And right, like the, I want to speak to your manager and seeing police as the managers of society is just such like a clarifying way to bridge that gap for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really what it is. Um, We're thinking about entitlement just generally, and that can be expressed in different ways. And because white women sort of have, if we're thinking about society as a hierarchy, white women have power that other women or other femme presenting people don't have. And so because of that, and because of the racial history of the U.S., it is acceptable for them to do this performative caretaker role where the entitlement is coming from this place of, I want to protect those in my community, right? Like what we saw with Barbie Becky. I want to protect people in my community. But on the other hand, we can blatantly see 
like with the Amy Cooper, this is Central Park Karen, we can plainly see with Central Park Karen that there was no threat, there was no harm. It's purely just that white entitlement and feeling, why should I be inconvenienced for anyone? Which is the exact same thread that we see with people who don't want to wear a mask and with people who don't want to get a vaccine, right? Why should my lifestyle or my beliefs be compromised? Why should I compromise my body? And it's so funny in an ironic way that on the opposite end, when they're calling the police on Black people for not conforming to their desires, they actually are threatening legitimate bodily harm against them, right? Because if we follow that thread of, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a Black man is threatening, the implication is that a Black person may end up dead because the police come, right? And at times I think maybe they're not sure that that's what they're doing, but at other times it's blatantly clear that that's exactly what they're doing. Amy Cooper. Right. That they're threatening bodily harm and violence against Black men, uh, Black women, Black children. And to me, that's appalling. Yeah. Oh my God. It's chilling watching Amy Cooper essentially threaten to kill him, right? Like murder by cop. So I'm just wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the history of white women as a weapon of white supremacy, because it feels like, and this is stuff that you've talked about in your work, right? For a long time, our collective conscious idea is to some extent, or white people's collective conscious idea is that to some extent it was white men who were leading the charge on racist action and white women have sort of gotten a pass. And that is absolutely not based on historic truth. So I'm wondering if you can just walk us through a little bit of the history of white women as an active part in white supremacy. Yeah. So in They Were Her Property, um, Stephanie Jones Rogers talks about the idea that we as a society have that white women were not at all participants in the transatlantic slave trade. And we know that that is a myth, right? Um, or I should say social scientists and historians know that that's largely a myth, that white women were not just passive bystanders, but that just like in most historical moments in U.S. American history, white women were actively playing a role, whether that was through support or even a more active role in the selection and acquisition of slaves and also in the process of separating slave families from each other, right? So they're very much so involved in the ideology associated with owning slaves and the mythology around owning slaves and making this distinction in them versus us, right? Um, often in social science, there is the prevailing idea that whiteness in general was invented as a mechanism to justify or legitimate the idea of owning other people as property, right? And so if we think about that and follow the logical thread, we can see that if Early on in the U.S., often there was this distinction between white, right? There was Italians and Polish and as opposed to more respectable European immigrants, right? So as we're having this, this push to own slaves to justify, the narrative changed and less desirable whites are now being included in this overall category of whiteness. And to do that, they needed to have this justification of, well, white is genetically superior or Black people 
are not actually human in some ways, right? And so anyone who participated in the slave trade, white women included, also participated in that narrative in saying, well, Black people aren't human or they're animalistic, they're not like us, right? And then we sort of continue that, the ideology around Black men in particular as these big, brutish male rapers who are just out to get women, white women, to rape women and seduce them and to tarnish them really has this imagery of Blackness dirtying and sullying and making impure whiteness. And when we really think about that in U.S. society, of course, we have to also talk about religion and this idea of purity culture and that women are to remain pure, particularly white women are the standard of purity and the standard for womanhood. So if we're thinking about what that looks like, it sort of becomes clear to see then why white women would construct Black men as a threat, right? Because it sort of operates and exists as a foil against that sort of pure white mythology that we have associated with U.S. Christian perspectives. So one of the defenses that gets kicked in is like, why are you calling out white women? So I would love to hear you explain that, right? Like that, what is it about women in particular that need to be called out, not just as like general white supremacists, but what is the gendered aspect of how women engage in white supremacy? Right. So in Raising for Innocence, Jennifer Pierce really talks about this idea of white women feeling the need to stand by their man, which is this idea that they support their men in this sort of implicit supporting role and not just in the fact that they are managers, as women often are of households. They manage the children, they manage the care, the labor, the groceries, all of those things that we know that women do as an inordinate amount of as compared to men, but they also support their men ideologically. So if white men are at the top of the power structure and they are feeling that structure shifting, which it is, and they're sort of grasping for power, then white women are going to also work to maintain their position as the top of the status hierarchy. So as men have power, as white men have power, they also are the ones who set the agenda. They legitimize the role of womanhood. And because white men have said sort of implicitly and explicitly often that white women are the peak of desirability, the peak of what it means to be a true woman, then of course, white women have some incentive to maintain the existing racial status hierarchy. And so for them, their privilege sort of exists only in opposition to other women and other people of color not having power, right? And so the driving mechanism there is the desire to maintain the status quo, to maintain the existing rule of law and order, which has white men and white women positioned at the top of the hierarchy. And so I think often in society, we like to think that white women don't benefit in the same way that white men do. And yes, it's true, right? Like sexism exists. I'm not at all denying that. But if we're thinking about who has more power, white women or women of color, certainly white women have more power in our society than women of color do. And if we sort of think of it from another angle, the cult of true domesticity would say that 
women and mothers to be a mother is the ultimate goal as a woman, right? And often when we think about what is virtuous in U.S. Christian society, it is the goal of being a mother who transmits these values and belief systems to their children. And we know that it is often women who do this, who tell stories about who you can and can't date, right? Who you should and should not bring home, all of these things. And so even if we don't think explicitly about the ways that white women might be participating in racism, they're transmitting these ideas, these racist ideologies to their children. And of course, that then reinforces that for the next generation. April, something that you write about is white civility. And I was wondering if you could just tell us what that means in this context. Well, that's kind of a big question. So for thinking about civility, we could go all the way back to the ideologies of Kant and Hegel, right? But we won't, mostly because I think that stuff is boring. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But in general, the idea of civility is that there are given norms and values about the way that you are supposed to participate in quote-unquote polite society. So that will mean that you are supposed to be polite. You are not supposed to express anger You were supposed to remain calm, all in the effort of this democratic exchange of ideas in which two people on opposite ends of a political spectrum can have a respectful exchange of ideas, right? But this notion of civility is a very white notion of civility in that it doesn't leave room to address the fact of, or the idea of, what if the thing that we're arguing about is my legitimacy, my existence as a human, right? There are times when it's appropriate not to be civil, when incivility is the best way of getting things done. Lots of our social movements rely on incivility. It doesn't make sense that civility sort of underpins this idea of what is appropriate political protests, right? But often when we have these heated political exchanges, if you watch people on the news or even in online spaces, there's this call for civility. Um, I've read so many articles that are, what happened to American civility? Well, American civility was really whiteness describing and ascribing for everyone else how we should behave. And now people are pushing back against that and sort of unpacking what it might really mean to be civil and to have civility. And I don't want to say that we should altogether do away with civility, but I low-key feel like it doesn't serve us well anymore, right? Civility is not a tool that is appropriate for every conversation that we're going to have. So white women, right, are attempting to impose this white civility in order to maintain the status quo of their own power in support of these power structures. And so one of the ways that they do that is through these surveillance moments of violence, right, that we saw through the Becky meme, through Amy Cooper. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that surveillance, but also the counter surveillance of white women by Black created memes, right? There has been like this, this counter surveillance in a really productive way. And I know that that is at the heart of your research. So I would just love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I would say 
in the effort to maintain the existing status quo where whiteness and the ideas that are associated with whiteness that are sort of implicitly baked into U.S. American culture, the surveillance comes in when people notice that norms and thoughts about race and ideology are shifting. And so there is an effort to patrol and regulate and try to ensure that the norms don't shift more or even that norms could be reinstated in the way that they were in the past, right? In the U.S., we have very much so a system of implicit segregation where even though segregation is illegal, we still largely see white people act as though there are spaces that are for white people and spaces where it is acceptable for Black and Brown and Indigenous people to exist, right? And spaces where they're not. And so as we are seeing now, people of color saying, actually, we reject that. Actually, most of us built these spaces for you, white people. And we have every right to access these spaces as you do. Um, we're seeing this pushback, the surveillance to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Even if that's not explicitly what's being said, that is, if we follow the logical steps, what we see happening. And so that's what the surveillance is about, is maintaining that existing social order where some spaces are off limits or out of reach for folks of color. And the surveillance is also an extension of terrorism. I do want to add that in, right? In the past, historically, when we talked about surveillance, like in the case of Emmett Till, that surveillance ended with him losing his life, as it did for so many other people who were lynched. They were surveilled by the white people in their communities. It was believed that they were doing something that was violating the norm of law and order of the day. And so they were punished by their communities as an extension of that surveillance to instill fear in other Black people in the community so that they would always know that they were being watched and what the consequences of, of them breaking the law and order of the day would be, would be for them to be lynched and hanged also, right? So it's a mechanism of terror. And surveillance today also has the same mechanism of terror where we can see Karens calling the police and saying, a Black man is threatening me. That is really only a few steps away from the same kind of punishment of lynching, right? So I want to be really clear that there is that element of terrorism there. And that's why Black people will often refer to these moments as domestic terrorism, because there really is this element of terror and fear driving this discipline by the police. And yes, on the other hand, we also have this counter-surveillance or surveillance where uh, folks of color are saying, enough is enough. We caught you in the act of this. And of course, none of this would be possible without digital technology and recording capabilities to actually show people that this is how it's happening in the moment. And because we have these technologies, we can now hold these actors accountable for their actions and they can't be swept under the rug. There's an ever-present record. And really often Karens and Beckys are being tried in the court of public opinion, which I think is excellent. And the memes really help to establish and sort of define for us what is unacceptable behavior and say to 
Karens or would-be Karen perpetrators, if you do this, first, it's not going to be unseen. It's going to be seen. Second, uh, we're probably going to make fun of you for it, as you should be, as you rightfully deserve. And third, there may be social consequences for you calling the police and making false reports. Not only are those social consequences things like you may lose your job or you may not be able to shop in the same places you did because now people in your community recognize you as the kind of person who does these things. Uh, But in a lot of places like California, Michigan, New York, and New Jersey, there are actual laws now that will allow someone to take a person to civil court and sue them for emotional damages. Or also they could serve jail time. Um, So there are legal repercussions as well that we wouldn't have had without these memes. The memes really have ushered in this accountability, so much so that some of the the legislation is actually called Karen Acts, um, which stands for Caution Against Racially Exploitative Non-Emergencies. And so we can really see how the memes are counterbalancing and creating this counter-surveillance of Karens and Beckys. April, thank you so much for taking the time and walking me through this. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'm just so grateful for the work that you do and for your time today. Of course. I am so happy to be here. Thank you all for inviting me. And I look forward to being in conversation with you all as we sort of track the progression of Karens and hopefully limit the behavior and sort of see what the next iteration will be because there's always a next iteration. It's not going to stop with Karens. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I think most of what Dr. Williams said here is self-explanatory. 
but I do have a few reflections that I'd like to share. As you heard at the beginning of the episode, when I did the first part of this Karen series, I thought that there were two kinds of Karens, the I want to speak to your manager Karen and the I will call cops on black people Karen. The biggest thing that I learned in my conversation with Dr. Williams is that they are not different attributes. Both of these presentations are weaponized forms of white female entitlement. But I do want to take something away from episode one about the talking to your manager idea. I now realize that that was also about white female entitlement. But there are ways that white women can use their entitlement for good. Not as saviors. We cannot be saviors. But we are less likely to be accosted by cops if we film them than a black woman is. And there are certain things that I think we should all be entitled to, that the world does not act as though we are entitled to. Our children shouldn't be in pain when they don't have to be. I want everyone to be entitled to that. And that doesn't look like yelling at nurses, but that I have other harder work to do that frankly sounds annoying and impossible. The Karen does the work for themselves, and so does the white savior. But there still has to be a possibility for us to work for everyone's good. It's just really, really hard. Another reflection. I heard from a lot of people named Karen who are upset that we were taking on this topic. To you, I want to say, I get it. That sucks. But oh well. That happens to names all the time. A friend of mine from college was really upset Katrina became synonymous with disaster. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, but Katrina's name being more complicated wasn't the most important part of that story, you know? So I get your pain, and your pain isn't the point. Calling someone a Karen isn't sexist either. It's gendered, and there's a difference. Next reflection. The answer to the question, am I a Karen, is probably. There are probably ways that I wield my white female power without thinking about it. And if someone points it out to me, I need to take that seriously and try to learn from it as much as that will hurt. But also, even if I never behave as a Karen, I am a white woman and therefore black people see me as a potential threat. When I walk into a park and there's a black family there, they see me as potentially surveilling them. And therefore, the fact of my body, because of my racial inheritance, is a trigger of terror. And that is not only fair, but evidence-based historically, anecdotally, and it is confirmed by the data. White women are a threat to Black people, and there is nothing that I can do about that. I could never ask to speak to a manager, and I can never call the police again in my life, but I will always be scary to Black people to some degree or another. And that makes me sad, but it's a fact. And my sadness is less important than their fear. So I'd like to thank Casper for starting this conversation with me, Ariana for always being my conversation partner, Terms of Endearment, Mommy Dearest, and most importantly, Dr. April Williams. Also, for the record, I do want to talk to the manager of COVID. (music) 
You've been listening to The Real Question. We can only make this show thanks to your support. If you have the means to help us out, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash realquestionpod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at realquestionpod and Twitter at the Real Q Pod. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by Malika Kumpankum, and our music is by Nick Bull. We're distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Lara Glass, Stephanie Paulsell, AJ Yaramas, our BFF tier patrons, Amanda Schramm, Aofi Hugh, Ari, Ashley Mail, Daniel Kelly, Eloise Faring, Ava Wire, Jen Wolf, Mara Rothman, Mary Margaret, Rebecca Crow, and Stephanie Federwish. And of course, a very special thanks this week to Dr. April Williams. Thanks everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.